Welcome to the Blooming League of Original Podcast. G'day and welcome to a spectacular, spectacular edition of Thrash and Treasure, the Torture Chamber musical comedy podcast that's like Big Ted and Jemima being thrown into the Play School Thunderdome to fight to the death. And speaking of mime... <laughs> How's it going? Yeah, only only you could do a visual gag in an audio medium. <laughs> Anyways, guess what? What? We have another legendary Aussie diva in the square window today. And after four decades of inspiring audiences of all ages, one has to wonder what this affable artiste did in a past life to end up in our torture chamber. But that's insignificant to this stellar stallion stamp upon Aussie stages and screens where we've seen this Sydney cider slip and slide all over the slippery sobs since making <laughs> Madame's atmospheres melt as Marius in the merriest of mega musicals, Les Miserables. And from out of the death and destruction, his career came alive and solidified this gentle gem starshine, swiftly sweeping him up in the sweet swixty sound of the sapphires, based on the novel by Precious, which helped improve that twice company, three's a crowd, but four Jews be bitching when he played Marvin in falsettos at the Sydney Opera House. And this classy soiree granted him the glamorous life required to perform alongside that acting anomaly, Dame Judy Dench, in A Chosen Little Musical. Plus, it prepared this prince to play Christine's pristine paramour, Raoul, in The Phantom of the West End, where he must have done something good for Androloid Webber, who sailed him into Canada to commandeer the Von Trapp family. And whilst high on the hills, he ripped into two billies, Crocker and Flynn. But that was after being cast as both titulars, Jekyll and Hyde, where he hid so well, nobody ever got to see it. Unlike Take Me Out, where he was showered in praise and balls, that's baseballs, Evan, as well as balls, and dozens more stage appearances, such as High Society, I Wish, Le Casual Fall, Evan Wishes, Holding the Man, I Wish, The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, Evan, I Wish, plus the Aussie tour of Mary Poppins, and that's before we've even turned on the tally. But if we do, we can, can, can throw a huge Aussie g'day as we shut up and raise our glass to this legendary lad who has appeared in a multitude of shows such as literally everything on Australian television, including his <laughs> AFI award-winning role in Devil's Playground, which he later co-created, produced, plus reprised on the equally award-winning TV miniseries. And that all led to dying so Vin Diesel could kick some alien ass in the pitch black. But crush landing <laughs> back to Earth, not even a medal from the Queen of England can compare to the two decades this dude delivered nursery rhymes, ABCs, 123s and naptime stories to a random 17 million or so babies and toddlers, including me, which means he taught me to read a bitch to filth. So today we welcome a childhood hero into the fun but mental library to show him the kind of monster he helped create with paper, sticky tape and a plastic bottle on his extra long run, co-hosting the extra, extra long running Aussie TV Institute Play School. So hopefully we've finally found a guest who's brought along a bear for me because we know he's definitely got some stories to tell. For recently, he's gone from flipping and tripping in Pippin to high kicking and pimping in Moulin Rouge as Harold Zidler. So please raise your legs and teddies into the air for the one and only Mr. Simon Burke. Yeah, I am absolutely godsmacked that you are on my show. 
Wow. <laughs> wow. Sorry. I'm sorry to do that to your career. I admire you so much, Simon, and everything you have accomplished. <laughs> <laughs> that was amazing. That was incredible. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, I know you've listened to a couple of episodes, so you you knew what to expect. I I did. Yeah, you you put it all you put out all stops there, man. It was beautiful. Thank you. Throwing a little uh, cheeky take me out reference there. Obviously, it's just been nominated for a few Tony Awards. I just saw that this morning. Yeah, I had no re- I had no idea there was a revival. Yeah, there's that. There's company as well, which is on your resume. Moulin Rouge swept the the Tonys last year, obviously, which you're doing. But you're currently on hiatus, so are you making sure to keep to that show routine with eight naps a week? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I must say, about four o'clock every afternoon, I do get a little kind of bit of sleepy time because, um, yeah, Moulin Rouge is is probably the most exciting show I've ever done and have ever done, but it is also Mm -hmm. the most incredibly um, uh, energetic and physically demanding. So I find myself uh, having a bit of a sleep around four o'clock, actually. Yep. Yes, that is actually four o'clock now, isn't it? Um, our guests are from all over the world. And as I said to you, we've had some at 2 a.m. So my right, sleeping yeah. is really depends on what week it is and who we've got. <laughs> Fair enough. So I have to be absolutely versatile there. Mm. I've got a couple of questions on Moulin Rouge, but I'll, I'll ask another one later. But you're playing Zidler, who um I find one of the most fascinating characters in cinema because he's pretty much a clown pimp. He is so over the top and he's an entertainer, but he has this whole empire on his shoulders and he will do anything and sacrifice anything and anyone for that. And it's that darkness that brings the light to the Moulin Rouge and all that joy and happiness. So what's it like to, to sink your teeth into a role that has that darkness behind such a, uh, a clownish exterior, if you will, if that's the right word? That's a really pertinent, interesting question, and it's something I've been grappling with for a bit because it's not often that you get to play a character which, at face value, as you say, is kind of the entertainer and the the glue of the piece and the kind of bonhomie and the kind of welcoming kind of fun figure. And so my job in that part of the show is to be as extreme and as fun and as welcoming and as warm as possible. But it's not often that you get to sort of see backstage um, which you do in Moulin Rouge with my character. And you do see exactly the sort of things you're talking about. His problem, which is that the, the place is falling apart and he needs to kind of keep it up and he will do anything and sacrifice anyone to get that. And also um, there's a lot of kind of quite tender, um, realistic moments in the show too, which is um, which is what makes it so much fun to, so much fun and so difficult and so wonderful to do, yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, I'm sure Evan would be thrilled that it is another musical about putting on a musical. <laughs> yeah, it seems to be a common theme within the <laughs> musical world. I think there's about 10 to 12 off that I could probably sit and write down that, that are just musicals about putting musicals on. Yeah. It's it's the Russian doll syndrome, isn't it, basically? Yeah. So that's what gets the Oscars every year if you make it a film about making films. I mean, the artist got it. Whoever saw that coming. Or whoever saw that. <laughs> well, that is true. <laughs> yes, but anyways, we'll move on. Uh, we're going to move on to the metal because whoever listens to that. Uh, now, <laughs> firstly, have you had any experience with heavy metal or metal, new metal, glam metal? There is speed metal, apparently. <laughs> Proto metal. We could be here a while. Yeah, there's every metal. That's it. Um, I have to say my experience of, of metal is incredibly limited. Um, yeah. And 
I would say in, in terms of listening to one album, I, I guess the album that uh, that you sent me that we're talking about today is probably the first one I've listened to in entirety from start to finish. Yeah. Um, wow. Um, but I have to say I was pleasantly surprised. I mean, I know we'll talk about it later, but I was, I was kind of, I was really kind of intrigued and perhaps it was because I was, I, I did it when I was driving back from, we finished um, Moulin Rouge in Melbourne a few weeks ago and mm-hmm. I was driving back from Melbourne to Sydney and I listened to it then and I was like, I was really carried away by the by the kind of virtuosity and the drama of in this album in particular. So mm. no, no is the short answer. Yep, we hear that a lot, and we actually hear a lot of musical performers say they don't know musicals either. I am I'm yeah. also someone who is not a big um, musical theatre fan, although I've done I spent like a great deal of my life doing musical theatre. But um, for some reason, I'm not the mat- most kind. Of, I'm like I don't know, like you know, who did the Broadway revival of this in you know 1997? Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, so just a quick question, because you did play school, obviously, for a long time. If you could pick a nursery rhyme to turn into a metal song, which <laughs> one do you think would be a good one? Oh, that's a good one. I think almost anyone. I think Wiggly Woo would be a pretty fucking good metal song. Yeah. Wiggly Woo! Wiggly Woo! Let's <laughs> up do the Wiggly Woo! Ah! That's probably a punk song already, I think. It, it, it yeah. does sound... It would work. It totally would work as either one. I reckon it's probably already been done. <laughs> yeah, there are lots of nursery rhymes that have been turned into metal versions. I was looking, you know, when I was trying to pick the album, I was I was Googling that. Um, unfortunately, they're all compilations. They're not, you know, a single band doing right. an album of nursery rhymes. But, yeah, there are. There's there's people out there, you know, doing thrash versions of Wheels on the Bus and that kind of thing. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, I'm going to read my review because Evan chose the album. So I'll quickly get through that. Anyways, when I first saw the cover, I had no idea who or what. So I fired up the Spotify and set off into the unknown. The first eponymous track was a strange mix of early Baywatch and an 80s orange juice commercial, but instead was about a man and his alien friend on the run from the law and a gang of alien poachers. But the second track took a dark turn when I saw it was called Ice Nine. They're just taking the mickey now. Anyway, this sleazed up track spoke of a rich woman from the Upper East Side being mugged before three New York City prostitutes save her and sweep her up in their scandalous world of debauchery. Yes, queens, five stars. But noticeably, (laughs) upon my third and fourth listens, I began to notice these songs seem to be middling along whilst the epic guitarist shreds the house down cowboy boots before fading out like the end credit music of a straight-to-VHS sequel of Bloodsport. The love song bored me, but where the middling fade-outs of other tracks seemed at odds with the master shredder, here they seemed to fit in this tale of two rockers who fell in love, married, had kids, and lived happily ever after. Yawn. (laughs) Overall, each song told a quirky story whilst the guitarist did his thing, but they didn't always match up and create anything more than a quirky story. Without catchy bops, you can only go so far, but Surfing with the Aliens seemed like a spirited band, a fun party band for the long headset, though I've never heard of them. At least I paid attention to the lyrics this time. (laughs) Two and a half stars, teetering on a two. It was like old video game or TV in the 80s, Muzak. It didn't feel like metal. It felt like a free sample. <laughs> oh, my God. Can, can we just, just confirm that, you know, this 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 album? Yes, sorry, there, there by Surfing with the Aliens. Yes. No, oh, my God. By, by, by Joe Satriani. That's the album, yes. 
We should have told the audience that. that. Yes, is the artist's name. <laughs> it was fun, but I thought that the way the songs faded out didn't feel like they were full pieces of music that had a beginning, middle and an end. And so it just felt like the background music was middling just to showcase the guitarist, who is good. He's great. And he got all the stars. <laughs> um, I know the, the prostitutes did. He um, only got two stars. Or two and a half, teetering on a two. Oh, my God. Right. Depending on what Evan has to say. I might teeter to a three. I'm not a monster. You've just ins- insulted the, the metal gods, I think. You know, Probably. Person- personally kick them in the balls. I am already going to hell, so let's just speed up the process, why don't we? <laughs> Anyways, um, yeah, no, I didn't get it. Wow. For those who don't know, I mean, Joe Satriani is is the creme de la creme. He is the absolute one of the best guitarists in the world, coming up to one of the best guitarists they've ever been. Technically, immaculately perfect. Oh, yeah, he's great. He is just, he's a freak of nature, really. He's, he's up there. You know, he taught guitar legends. Mm. He taught Steve Vai, who's an absolute master. And, you know, he's above Steve Vai, even though they both went to high school. It's not the point. Wow. Both went to high school together, sorry. Uh, yeah, Kirk Hammett from uh, Metallica, Larry Lalonde from Primus. Can I just clarify? Sorry, I said wow because you said they went to high school and I said wow and it sounded like a sarcastic moment. <laughs> yeah, no. I presumed you meant them together and that's why yes. I was a genuine wow. I wasn't being sarcastic, yeah. just to clarify. He's, but yeah, he's literally, you know, a virtuoso. He's 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 yeah. a maestro. He he's just mastered so many styles and then taken them to the next level. I mean, he's a completely mental guitar player. Respected the world over by anyone who play plays a freaking stringed instrument, <laughs> and you're going, oh, it's a bit, it's a bit middling. Well, the background music, <laughs> it's I, a shredding god. I, it, it's, I called him Master Shredder. Yeah, okay. But now that was actually because originally the blood sport was Ninja Turtles, but I thought '87 they didn't really have movies back then, so it's really interesting um, that you say that, Evan. Because and thank you so much that you know the, the first metal album I listened to was this guy. Because as I was listening to it, I mean, I know nothing about metal, know nothing about the genre, yeah. but I was listening to this guy play, and I'm thinking like, wow, I don't know anything about guitar playing. I don't think about anything about metal, but there's something quite incredible about this guy. I could actually. I mean, so I'm glad that I was right at the start. Mm. But also, like, it's like like I don't ever watch soccer until I watch the World Cup. I never watched, you know, swimming until I watched the Olympics. Like, mm. I felt like I was watching, like, that of guitar players um, or listening to that of guitar players. And um, I, I was really blown away, I have to say. Yeah, yeah, you're spot on. He's, I, I agree. He's just one of the best. Yeah, he is good. But what was backing him up? I don't think lived up to that. Himself, funnily enough, on this album anyway. Everything? Pretty much, yeah. Well, the compositions then, or the especially the ending. Come on, <laughs> you're telling me that wasn't video game music. You've got an old arcade behind you, which has <laughs> Silver Surfer on. Yes, which has the story of the album cover. The, the album cover that you saw that you have on Spotify has a, a guitar's headstock on the cover. Which is for the uninitiated yeah, like the me. The top of the guitar where the strings tighten. Okay, yeah, yeah. Six keys. 
the hand. Oh my god, you know what the top of a guitar looks like. Jesus. And it's there's the arm and then it's the hand. That's the guitar. Yes, it's yeah. the head. And you play the air guitar here. Yeah, it's the head and the neck. The, the head and the neck, not the hand and the arm. Oh my god. Evan's getting very cross with you. I know. Yeah, how can you not identify <laughs> the parts of a guitar? Oh my god. Well, I have moronic names for things, as you already know. So you get technical, I'm lost. Go. This is the original album cover, which has Silver Surfer on the front, and um, he's flying out of Galactus's hand in the, on the back, which is taken from Silver Surfer number one. They licensed it from Marvel, but up until about 2016, they, they had to keep renewing the license, and they couldn't come to an agreement, so they had to change the album cover. So that's why the arcade is playing Silver Surfer, because that's the album cover I remember, and that's pretty much what it's always been. Does that have anything to do with our overlords, Disney? Yeah, they wanted too much money. And he said, he's like, oh, we'll, we'll just redo the cover then. So there really is, like, there's seriously a Marvel connection there. Yeah, 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 there is. Because I was going to say, I felt like the, it was like the soundtrack to a Marvel movie. Well, yeah, it could be. It has been used in many films, many TV shows, yeah. I've never heard of the guy again. Wow. Someone else <laughs> I haven't heard of. It's it's like not, not hearing of, you know, Sondheim or um, Rogers and Amistad. No, never heard of them. Well, Peter Frampton <laughs> I have, and I couldn't help but um, compare him and... Yeah, you like his hair. I don't know what he looks like. I just know what he sounds like because <laughs> his guitar talks. Yeah, well, this, they're very similar. You know, Joe Satriani is doing the vocal parts with the guitar, really. You know, that's why the whole thing's instrumental. And he doesn't just stick to instrumental albums. Like, the next album that he released, like, two years later has, you know, 50% lyrics. I would have liked to heard him sing. He can sing. Um, he, He's credited on like backing vocals with like crowded house this guy has worked with freaking everybody well he's recorded you know credited on albums with like alice cooper spinal tap blue oyster cult crowded house i mentioned yards birds dream theater wow. he also did two characters in adult swim for metalocalypse you know how i was saying they they got hardcore metal people to to play characters um, he was part of that. Yeah, I know what that is. And I recognize most of those bands you named, except two. Yeah, he's, he's had, you know, he's just one of those guys. He plays with everyone. They literally do, every year they do the G3, you know, as a play on the, the G7 or the G20. They do the G3, which is him and two other guitarists. Well, tour, basically. And they just do guitar shredding exhibitions as concerts. And they sell out every year. Oh, wow. so, but, but this one in particular, like this is your classic sort of rags to riches type story where like he'd done one album and and hadn't hadn't really got much support um the record label had decided that they would shell out for this one um they're like okay we'll we'll fund it but they only funded about thirteen thousand dollars which as anyone who's recorded an album simon would know 13 grand is bugger all oh fuck yeah that's yeah, this is even in 1987. So he basically he couldn't afford anyone to come in and play bass, guitar, uh, 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 wow. drums, whatever, um, or even mix or engineer. He pretty much did it solo. Wow. Uh, yeah, just jumping back and forth, recording different parts because he was, you know, a broke, bloody, a budding musician. He couldn't couldn't afford multiple guitars. So what he what he did uh, to get different sounds, uh, he used to apparently work in a guitar shop and he'd have three different pick guards for the same guitar. And then in between breaks, he would de-string the guitar, swap the pick guards with the new um, pickups in them, and then record the next part with basically a different guitar. And then he would just keep swapping them over and over so he could wow. you know, get the sounds he needed. So on a budget, because he couldn't afford two extra guitars. What's a pick guard? 
Oh my god, it's the thing oh. that stops you scratching the body of the guitar with your pick. Oh, well, you're just getting so impatient with me. I don't know these things. Well, the the pickups are mounted in it. You can generally just unscrew them. It's a bit of a process, but yeah, he would do it all himself. So he would, you know, literally change the pickups in in the same guitar over and over and over to get different sounds. Okay. Yeah, I, I love him mainly because he just throws the kitchen sink at every song. You know, it's just every kind of yeah. technique and and style is just all gets thrown on top, and it somehow just keeps doing it and doing it and doing it. He's done eighteen studio albums to this point. Wow, um, he's prolific. He's incredible. He's what guitar gods look up to. Um, he's yeah, he's just just the king. Cool. I, I can't, you know, you can't speak any more highly of him. There's no one more technical, technically perfect or proficient as, as Joe Satriani. Yeah, well, if you can't speak any more higher, the only way is down. So be careful <laughs> what you wish for, Evan. Um, so, Simon, were you rocking out to this with your air guitar and how many strings did you break? <laughs> yeah, I, I liked most of it, i got to say. When you, it was interesting talking about how, how there are no lyrics to any of these songs that he, and that he does on his later albums do lyrics. As someone who's not really into this genre, I have to say that it was a way in for me that there weren't lyrics because it meant I could kind of appreciate the musicality of it. Mm. I often find when I listen to you know, heavy rock or, or metal or something, you know, like it's, it's just like I can't understand what the fuck they're saying, so I sort of I turn yeah. off immediately. So <laughs> just listening to the virtuosity of the musicianship and stuff, I found kind of a, a, almost a way in, you know. Actually, also the bass. I liked a lot of the bass. Like, it's interesting you say that he did the bass as well mm. and the rhythm and yeah, yeah. Uh, the only song that is um and all the drums are um programmed just like the uh like the zz top album um, okay. afterburner where they they basically just told the, the bass player and the drummer to go home we've got this and they just programmed it all the only song that does have people playing on it other than joe satriani is um satch boogie which was track five. Oh, that's the fun one yeah yeah Aww. that's good you got real people playing as well it makes a big difference yeah it's sort of like that's that's like party time isn't it yeah and they're sort of really showing off and having heaps of fun and like yeah that actually you can actually tell there's other people in the room there maybe all very low budget and you know scraping together trying to tie together strings and save every last penny just to, to pay the bloody studio fees probably why they couldn't afford to end the songs <laughs> <laughs> Can I tell you the one song I hated? Yes. There's something called Always With Me, Always With You. Oh. Yeah, the love song. Oh, no, go away. Oh. That's the only one that, that felt like it did need lyrics, and if the lyrics are there, they'd be bad. <laughs> it felt like a sort of Brat Pack movie from like, with Ali Sheedy and Emilio Estevez or something like it was going to be like in the montage scene when they're breaking up or something. It's just that, yeah, I wasn't into that, but I loved all the other stuff, I have to say. Yeah, no, that was awful. I hated that song. That was just because <laughs> no. I'm not a fan of ballads as it is. I've made it very clear on this show I don't have time for ballads much. And he likes musicals, Evan. What the? What? And I like musicals, yeah. Yeah, I, I know. It's it's weird. Yeah. So, yeah, I just didn't have time for that one at all. I'm like, no, fuck off. He's had 14 Grammy nominations and sold over 10 million albums. So he is the man. And how many wins? No wins. Wow. He's, what, no, he's the Susan Lucci, not the man. Okay. I don't know who that is. God, and that's all that schmoozing you have to do, all those meetings, I guess all the free drinks and the free hors d'oeuvres and the free gift bags, that's fine. But all the schmoozing you have to do, God, who could be bothered? Just <laughs> just to keep losing all that time. And the one time he doesn't go, that's when he'll win. 
but yes. Anyways, it looks like the aliens fell off their surfboards, hit their heads, and were eaten by sharks. So we're going to go to an ad break. <laughs> That's so stupid. G'day, listeners. Aaron here. Because Evan and I are stuck in Australia, we thought we'd better send a spy to Broadway to check out the shows for us. So here for today's review is our Broadway spy, Spencer. Funny Girl, which was universally panned by critics. I don't think I read a single review that people liked it, but I did. I enjoyed it a lot. Beanie Feldstein was fantastic, hilarious. She truly embodied Fanny Bryce until she started singing. Jared Grimes, who was just nominated for a Tony Award, had the best moments in the show with his tap dancing and the tap choreographers who has been working with him since he was 14 years old. They have been a team for that long and it showed. Jane Lynch was exactly how you expected her to be, as funny and as graceful as Jane Lynch should be. Ramin was the con man of your dreams. You cannot believe how perfectly he embodied that. Harvey Firestein revised the book, and my only problem with that is it was a little bit too long. I felt like it didn't flow as well. Now, here's the problems with the show. The set was one of the ugliest things I've ever seen, and the lighting was very modern. So here's the question. Is it for tourists or purists? I think if you are a Barbara Streisand purist, you should not see this production, because all you're going to do is compare Beanie Feldstein to Barbara Streisand. If you don't know anything about Funny Girl, go and see this show because you will love it. And that's this week's review. Anyways, we're back with Fresh and Treasure. I'm Aaron. That's Evan. And we are joined by the one and only Simon Burke. Holy moly. Like, I have been watching this guy on screen like since I was literally in nappies and saying <laughs> nursery rhymes to me and taught me how to build things out of toilet rolls and cardboard and all you guys, you know, such a huge impact. Like, international listeners, I know the UK had play school up until I think it was 80 seven or something like that and then it disappeared but it's yeah. been on australian tv for 60 years <laughs> i'm pretty sure we had it in new zealand as well we had play school yeah the australian one or yeah um no it would have been the new zealand one it was definitely the nz one yeah as far as i remember it was exactly the same you know yeah. we had a big tent a little ted and, and we had a, a oh, square yeah. window and a round window and we had a rocket clock and basically a franchise yeah yeah it is but um, every episode on Play School, we would check the time on the clock. And quite often, much to our excitement, it would be the rocket clock. The rocket would turn around and there would be like a little diorama or something. And that would be the story that they would read to us. So Evan and I have made our own toilet roll rocket ships like you guys, even still now on Play School, they always do. So we're going to get Simon to judge which one is the most ridiculous. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, Aaron sent me a, a list of materials. He's like, right, we can use plastic bottles, toilet rolls, toothpicks, paper, cardboard. I think that was it. Okay. Uh, aluminium foil and, and glamour, yes. something like that. The, the yeah. things that they use on play school, basically. And I, and I said, I, I thought there were going to be restrictions on the materials. And you go, no, no, that's it. Well, okay, fair enough. Go on, show us. Who's first? You go first. 
You're the co-host. Oh, okay. Well, I have to take the headphones off. Why is it that big? Uh, because you, you didn't specify... How big it has to be. Oh, God. How big the plastic bottle could be. So... Oh, God. What did you do? So we made a rocket ship. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, ever no. I'm supposed to win this competition. That's not fair. So it's a bit of a homage to the rocket clock. That is. 100%. And it's bottles from... Water cooler bottle. It's massive. Yeah, so we've got all these boosted rockets all the way around. There we go. Evan, I am super, super impressed. And he's got his little portals because he's he's off. Wow. He's rocketing away. We're, we're sending Joe Satriani back to his own planet. In that. <laughs> so there, there you go. You know how hard these things are to cut? I had to cut the bottom off one and the top off the other. I had to do it on the table saw, which I don't advise. Don't cut plastic on the table saw. It can catch and you'll do yourself an injury. Oh, yeah. You're not meant to hurt yourself. All right. Well, I my one is very ridiculous. It's a rocket. <laughs> But it's also a spaceship. Look at that. Wow. Oh, oh, yours is a transformer. Damn. You just went the other way. It's also a deer with big ears. Um, yeah, now you're clutching at straws. No, look the nose and the eyes. You can't the- just draw a face on it and call it a deer. I did not. I did not. I had done the pattern on there and I looked and I go, that's a deer. That's wonderful. <laughs> An elephant, maybe. Yeah, I, I see elephant there. Well, I see elephant. That's very cool. Guys, seriously, I'm so impressed by both of you. But I didn't have a bottom, uh, a bottom, a bottle. So <laughs> I had to use a um a cup. Oh, you've broken the rules. Oh, shut up. I made the rules. So. I went out of my way. I didn't have a bottle. <laughs> the only bottles we have are for homebrew and as if I'm allowed to bloody rip one of those apart. So... <laughs> and I didn't have glue. Well, I did actually. I found glue after I'd used a bunch of roof and gap sealant. So it's it's got like all silicon all over it. It looks terrible. But yeah, so anyways, Simon, you are to be the judge on which one looks the most. Oh, well, I'd have to say. Remember who invited you onto the show? <laughs> <laughs> well, what about if I say this? I say, Evan, yours is definitely, definitely worthy of play school. But Aaron... Yours is definitely worthy of pitch black. It is, isn't it? Yeah. And I only watched it today too. So I and I made this yesterday. And you know what? I'm actually really impressed with myself because it was not looking good. It's pretty hard. It was looking disastrous through most of it, and suddenly it all came together, and I'm like, oh shit! So. We, we were doing this and I'm, I'm, I was sitting there thinking, oh, you know, I really envy the play school crew where they can rock up one day and go, what are we doing today? Well, Big Ted needs a pirate hat and, you know, Jemima needs a new kitchen and, you know, someone's got to build a set for Mary's Little Lamb, you know. <laughs> That would be awesome. I would love to do that. The makes on play school. So when you make something on play school, it used to be called a make. So you'd have a, a singing section or a story section or a sort of play section or a make section. I was pretty good at the singing, pretty good at the storytelling, pretty good at mucking around. But the makes, they always used to give you the makes because they would, because I was notoriously bad at doing the makes. And the producers used to say that a four-year-old child would look at what I'm making and thought, well, if that idiot can do it, anyone can. Uh, Hello. (laughs) 
I'm a product of that, Simon. Oh, uh, there you go. <laughs> One thing I actually got to bring this up, this YouTube video of them making a watering can, which does not look like a watering can. Let's just say that a bottle with water with a straw. And it is on YouTube. You can look it up. Play School Makes a Bong. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot watch that video without crying with laughter because it is so innocent. I think they do realize, but it's played so straight. Why do you think play school's going for 50 years? It's because, you know, the, it's the art of the double entendre. Yeah, true. <laughs> yeah. We... Yes. Yeah, so anyways, we're going to move on to the musical now. We've done that. So mm. a little night music is what we chose because Simon, you did this at the Royal National Theatre, I believe, in London with Holy Guacamole, Dame Judy Dench, who I would love to get her on here to talk cats, but... I know that that will get me blocked just asking that, so I won't. Uh, yeah, maybe the, not the best one to ask her about, but my God, yeah. No, uh, I, I, certainly a career highlight, even meeting Judy, let alone working with her. Oh, can imagine. So, Evan, how did you go mm. with this one? Because we've done quite a few contemporary musicals lately. I was singing in the rain wasn't, but it's still not this type of classical. Yeah. Well, as usual, I just, I'd listen to them blind without knowing anything about them and i'm so glad we did sunday in the park with george earlier and and i you know fell in love with that because it's so amazing oh did you oh hell yeah wow okay it's just really yeah oh the music by itself was jarring and horrible and then i saw the the pro shot the 83 mandy patankin and and it was like oh it all makes sense and it and it all came together and it was very clever and genius really to be fair i was freaking that episode because it was your first <laughs> recording and we had a guest so that was on my <laughs> mind that whole episode so i've forgotten anyways continue so yeah knowing knowing sometime from just that one and then listening to this blind not knowing anything about it i was immediately able to go ah oh, it's it's sometime you can hear it you know it's it, it it's obvious so i was able to enjoy it right from the start even though you know I should be coming in going, this is bloody opera. This is terrible. What is this garbage? <laughs> but because, I, because I've had that foot in the door through Sunday the Park with George, no, this was, yeah, really interesting. Again, I really love the research into a show like this that's been around for that long, been done that many times. But only, well, like, it seems to be the kind of show where you need top-notch people to be able to sing it. Like, it, it's not easy. And the, the orchestration is not easy. And you look at the sheet music and it's just this wall of dots. It's like, oh my God, it's incredibly complicated. But yeah, so a little night music came out what, originally in 1973 on Broadway. I listened to the original Broadway album and watched the 1990 PBS broadcast from the, the Lincoln Center. I think it was New York Opera Company did a production uh, for film, which a lot of people seem to have seen that copy. So, yeah, this week Aaron has looked through the triangle window because it's a musical done in threes. Your number OCD problem must be very happy with a little night music. It's it's all in threes. Yeah. I'm completely satisfied. My OCD <laughs> and, and Sondheim, the way he rounds things off and comes full circle, completely satisfied with his body of work. Full triangle, we've got to say. Full triangle, yes. That's true. Yes. But yeah, because he keeps the number three going all the way through it. There's a theme, you know, the, the vast majority are written in, in three, four time, which, which makes for great waltzing, by the way, if you ever learnt to waltz. And there's actually a lot of really good dancing songs in it, traditional dancing, ballroom dancing kind of songs. But yeah, a lot of the songs are often, they're either, uh, they're generally duets, but even then they're singing about a third person. The story's full of like interlapping love triangles. Um, you've got the grandmother's 
you know, the three smiles of the summer night, dealing with the young, the middle-aged and the old. Um, I, I sort of realized that there's three instances of either near-death experiences or a death. So it's like a trio of tragedy in there. Um, so yeah, he keeps threes. And I think there's an, there's a couple more references to threes in there that, that I've missed. I know, I know there's some musical callbacks that there's parts of songs that he uses three times, but yeah, this is, it's, it's really quite mental. Yeah. That's some time. <laughs> yeah. The, like the story wise is ridiculous. Uh, you've got all these characters, like these deeply flawed or just morally reprehensible characters. Um, they've all got so much going on at once. Um, you know, you've got, you know, Edgar in love with his stepmom, who's also his age while training to be a priest. Like everyone's got these issue upon issue upon issue piled up. Um, and they're all just kind of mashed together in a, in a weekend in the country just for the hell of it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's nuts. Uh, there are a few things that don't really make sense. Like what's his name? Magnus. You know, he won't defend his wife, but he'll defend his wisp, you know, his his mistress, you know, and let's pistols at dawn type dueling, but then chooses Russian roulette. Yeah, let's just flip a coin. Like that makes no sense whatsoever. Although in the production that I saw when he he spun the weapon, that wasn't much of a spin. It was literally pointed at at, um, at Edgar. And I'm like, are you going to spin again? Because that didn't even go round, mate. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you're clearly you first. But yeah, of all the dueling ways to sort out your differences, I wouldn't have chosen Russian roulette. But yeah, it's just a bunch of couples all cheating on each other and, uh, you know, trying to find, I don't know what they're trying to... They're, they're trying to find a little night music. Yeah, the other half are, you know, trying to find something better and, yeah. oh, it's, yeah, it's mental. It really is. You just come away exhausted, I think. I had to watch this over two nights. It just, there's just so much going on constantly. But it's incredibly clever. It's it's sometime, you know, that musically it's it's clever. Lyrically, it's so clever. There's gymnastics going all over the place. There's you're pushing singers to the to their limits. Eight shows a week, you know, you've got to be good to do this, clearly. But yeah, I, I liked it. It's sometime. It's you can't not like it. I'm starting to just go, you know, he's just he's just brilliant. You, you can't nitpick because the rest of 99% of it is just awesome. Yeah. You've also heard Gypsy because we have planned that episode. Mm. Yeah. See, I'm getting acclimatized to it now. Yeah. Is, although initially, if I, I, I admit, if I had listened to this blind and not knowing anything about it and not have heard any other Sondheim, I would be going, this is horrible opera. Why am I listening to this garbage? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's not. It really isn't. It's. I, I like it when there's a not just a story behind a musical, but just... <sighs> They've, they've jam-packed every last bit into this thing. Like the, the, the lyrics, you know, are constantly moving the story along, constantly defining characters and, and setting out scenarios. Like they don't just stand there and sing about how pretty something is for four and a half minutes and don't move the story along. You know, he's, he's so clever. Yeah. That My Wife song, You Must Make My Wife. I love that. Oh, uh, yeah. See, again, there's two people singing about a third. They're all in thirds. No, yeah, I can see why it's so beloved. I can, I can see why it keeps getting revived and redone, even just for, I guess, actors to, actresses, yeah, actors to, uh, to prove themselves and, and to be able to pull it off because there's some, there's a big notes in there and some really freaking hard things to sing, and yeah. you know, hard orchestrations as well. That, you know, the orchestra in the pit would be sweating profusely, yeah, <laughs> over some of this stuff. 
<laughs> did you recognize Send in the Clowns? Oh, yes. Yes, of course. That was the, the only song I did know. Yeah. And, and of course, I knew it from Simpsons. Yes. Yes. I knew it from Krusty's comeback special. They actually showed that there was a, some kind of a Sondheim revival uh, show and they played that particular version. And they had Krusty up on the big screen. That was hilarious. The crowd was losing it. Yeah, that was all I knew Sending the Clowns from was was from The Simpsons. Yeah. But yeah, that, and again, I, I, looking that up, I've seen the 1990 version, hearing the original version, and then I did see the uh, Dame Judi Dench's version um, on, a, on a talk show just being interviewed. And yeah, she's bloody, even though it's only a like a theatre interview talk show, you know, she, she cried on command incredible she probably does that every i assume every performance eight times a week she's she's crying on cue i was like oh my god you're good seeing as seeing as we have we have someone from a production of little night music aaron what is sending the clowns about i don't know what this show's about i've never seen it never <laughs> really heard it as i was waiting to get that in there i don't know like because i guess it's always been too classical for me, which is odd because I do like things like The King and I and Phantom of the Opera. And I love Tchaikovsky and stuff, but I just never really gave this the time of day, I guess the time of night, more appropriately. But if I'd known there was Russian roulette, I might have. <laughs> that was totally new to me. But one thing, listening to this numerous times, sometimes Twisted Smile is there because he had that iconic Twisted Smile and you hear it in his music. Mm. It's in the stories, but it's there in the music. And even in something like this, which is classical, and I thought it was just about old people having tea. I really did. <laughs> like, I know that's sacrilege. I'm definitely going to hell in a handbasket. Which one loves the musicals and which one loves the metal after now? Because after this, this conversation, I, I think we, you might be doing a bit of a swap, guys. <laughs> I know. Tell me about it. I know. It's getting bad. I'm getting acclimatised to this I stuff. I know. I just... I was just going to say, um, I'm, you know, I think your response to it, um, you know, on a first hearing, Evan is is so well, it's so visceral, really, and I, I, I think the 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 idea that um, what what always strikes me with all of sometimes work, but particularly this musical, is how he can present every character in this musical is completely real and they're completely ridiculous at the same time, and like. He doesn't comment on them. We don't laugh at them. We laugh with them. Yeah. Because we recognize ourselves in all of them. I mean, you can recognize yourself as a young man with Henrik, as a middle-aged man. I played Carl Magnus and <laughs> and and or as or, or as Frederick. Um, it's sort of like, you know, or or the three generations of women in in the show. Mm. And I'm fascinated that you talked about the threes because I believe it's the only musical. I don't know that there's another musical that has only ever been written in, in threes, as in uh, three, four, or six, eight. In fact, the song that Carl Magnus sings, his his solo is called in praise of women which um actually do on, on, on my album if you want to have a look at that on spotify yes we did i did yep that's in six eight but then there's a, a bridge of it which goes into three four where the band is playing a six eight and you're singing in three four it's a really it's like this is kind of so when two lots of like two two, two ways of, of doing things in threes are happening at the same time and as a performer you're singing in three four but the band's doing six eight it's kind of it's so exciting it's it's you know, and as you said, it it's such a challenge for a performer to do any song time, but this show in particular, because you really do have to kind of 
understand all the nuances and the the, the, the musicality and the the depth of, of feeling in all the characters is just it's incredible. When I was maybe 18, 19, when I first heard it, maybe should have given it more than one listen. Yeah, there's so much in it. That's I ended up watching, you know, people talking for two and a half hours about all the imagery and, and what he meant by this and what he meant by that and what, what that line meant. And they they really go in depth and pick it apart. But yeah, so you you don't have a take on what sending the clowns is actually about. Oh, that was the question. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, and then I expose myself again as a Sondheim troglodyte. Because it's at, I think it's at the point Desiree and Frederick Desiree. Uh, have yeah he's just turned her down. Okay. Yeah. Saying uh, we we she was hoping that we they would both need saving and he's gone yeah I'm gonna go back to my 18 year old wife and yeah she sings sending the clowns. Okay. What does it what does it mean? Well, again, there's lots of different interpretations. Oh, so it was a trick question. Yeah, yeah. The first, well, the first thing I, yeah, I think it's still up for debate, really. But my first thought was that in a circus, when uh, like acrobats have fallen, they would send in the clowns to distract the audience. There's the line in there that I'm on the ground and you in midair. And I'm thinking acrobats, you know, this, the whole thing is a disaster. Send in the clowns while we get carried out on stretches kind of thing. Oh, Wow, you're so smart. That was my first thought anyway. Yeah. I'm saying, yes, that's correct as if I know. (laughs) (laughs) I have no idea. But it sounds right. Like I I don't know. I think the thing about Sand and the Clowns is, you know, like so many kind of one-off songs from so many musicals, until you know the musical, until you hear the musical, we all know the song out of context. Yeah. You know, whether it's Barbara Streisand singing or Frank Sinatra or, you know. Sideshow Bob. How many... How many outside show Bob indeed? Yeah. How many crusty <laughs> or whoever it was? Crusty, crusty, yes. crusty. How many hundreds of versions of this have we heard? But I think it's about the the kind of the ridiculousness, as we were talking about before, of the human condition. Like, you know, just when I stopped opening doors, finally knowing the one that I wanted was yours. You know, like you get to a point in your life and you think you found the answer, and then something happens. And so Santa the Clown. Talking about when I had the pleasure of being in the production at the Royal National Theatre and obviously not on stage at that point, but I would often just stand in the wings and watch Judy sing it. And it was just the most incredible masterclass in, I would, I, I want to say acting, but probably what I would say is being. Yeah. Like she just said or sang the words. She didn't act them. If the tear, you know, you were talking about how she cried every night, blah, blah, blah. Like that's a secondary thing, I think. It's just the fact that she brought all her experience as a woman of 60, as she probably was around that time, and all experience, her decades of experience as an actor. And she just, just said it, you know? And it's interesting, those, those, you know, if you look at the musicality of that, it's a song with not much range. Mm. Not a, you know, they're not big high notes or whatever. You can almost speak that song. And it was written originally for Glynis John, who, who, you know, was on the recording that we looked in the original recording. And you don't have to have a massive range to sing it, you do, but you do have to have a massive range of experience in life. And I think that's what is so beautiful about the song. People uh, would know her from uh, Glynis John's from Mary Poppins. She played Winifred Banks, the mum. Oh, did she? Yes. That voice is just so iconic. Yeah, no, look, I, as I say, I yeah, kind of really like this. I, I like the darkness behind it, the twistedness that... Even that you should meet my wife or whatever it's called, that that mm. stood out very much to me. And I hadn't heard that before. I don't know. How, I, like, I might have just not known it where it was from. Yeah, it's all it's all very tongue-in-cheek pretty much all the way through. Exactly. Yeah, Magnus's character, I mean, he's really comic relief. 
Yeah. As well, I mean, the grandmother is as well, but um, yeah, he is. He's just that that stereotypical macho, machoist sort of guy. Yeah. Just, you know, everyone knows someone like that as well. 100%. Yeah, alpha male, yeah. but like a total pussycat. And like, you know, um, it was so much fun to play that character. I mean, mm. like someone who's absolutely, you know, without um, apology, just a total kind of backward chauvinist asshole kind of like... I can have a wife and I can have a mistress. And wait a minute, my mistress is going off with someone else. How dare she? It was kind yeah. of like, yeah. It was just, um, but also very truthful. I mean, there's, there's, you know, we see all those sort of people in ourselves. I was, I was really interested in what you said before, Evan, about um, sometimes songs, you know, people don't stand there and just sing and not move the action. And I think the best example of that in almost any musical is the, the Weekend in the Country song, which is the end of Act One. And in that song, which is probably a five minute song, you see an invitation to a weekend in the country being handed from one character to another and you see and and, and in each verse of it the action is moved further because you worked out who's going who isn't who what, what everyone feels about it and then suddenly everyone sings together and it's like it's it reminded me actually i was listening to it today and it reminded me a little bit of um you know the end of act one of uh, west side story where all the characters sort of start singing and like tonight tonight and so yeah, sort of you have this thing where and it's also a song i did the lyrics for that but yeah this thing of of wrapping up everything into such an exciting i don't know what's going to happen in the second half so you go out into interval thinking wow that show was cool yeah yeah no that's where i uh, lose my musical theater card because i wasn't a fan of west side story either Oh, wow. Well, we did that in Moulin Rouge too, by the way. <laughs> and, but the start of Into the Woods does that, where there's got individual stories and they come together and they go off into the woods. And that, that big, that, that's one example. I do like that show. But no West Side Story, they didn't both die at the end, so I felt robbed. Yeah, but if you go in expecting Romeo and Juliet, you're expecting two deaths. So let's, you know, th throw a curveball in a bit of a spanner in the works. Shakespeare's kind of four, five hundred years old by now. Like, there's no surprises. There shouldn't be any surprises. <laughs> it's Shakespeare. I don't know. Any ask anyone under 30. Oh, God, no, I'm not. Anyways, no. <laughs> so doing it at the Royal National, because this was you know, pretty, I guess it wasn't. You started at 13 years old. This wasn't bloody early in your career. Goodness me, this was. I guess it was, uh, well, it was. I suppose you could say midway into it. I mean, it's 25 years ago that it happened and it totally unexpected, but it was this brand new production of A Little Night Music, which, um, mm -hmm. you know, starring Judy Dench and directed by Sean Mathias and the guy that had originally played Carl Magnus in the original Broadway production, Lawrence Guitard, was playing Frederick in this production like 20 something years later. And it was all very exciting. Got amazing reviews. I went to see it with a mate of mine in London because I was living in London at the time and, and just thought, wow, this is great. And the guy who was playing Carl Magnus, a, a French actor called Lambert Wilson, for some reason had to leave the production or wasn't happy in it or something. And um, who, he was wonderful in that. So having seen that production and loved it, I got this call out of the blue to um, come and audition to take over from him in it. I'd literally seen it like four days before and had no idea that this was going to happen. And then suddenly there I was auditioning for Sean and they offered it to me. Often when you take over in a musical, well, always when you take over in a musical, you, like when I did Raoul in, in Phantom in the West End, I had about two weeks of rehearsals to get in, but none of it was with the cast that I was working with. It was all with um, Resident and they were you know, teach me the choreography and I sort of almost do it in a bubble. And then you meet some of the understudies. And then a couple of days before opening night, 
you meet the principals and then you have one kind of rehearsal with the orchestra and you're on that night. This is the Royal National Theatre and they do things slightly differently there. And so even though the show was still performing eight shows a week at night, I went in on 10 o'clock on the Monday morning to, to start rehearsals and I expected there'd just be sort of me and the stage manager and, you know, the director. And there was the entire cast, like all 20-something of them, including Judy, including Sean Phillips. And they did a read-through of the show and I was the only person going into it. And then we started rehearsing like the scenes and, um, you know, my first scene with, with Judy, cause I have a lot of scenes with her was all because I basically was playing Carl Magnus, who's kind of her toy boy. We started, we read through the scene and, and Sean said, okay, so Simon, what do you think's happening in this scene? And I went, oh, okay. So I sort of, you know, as, as you would normally do if you're first doing the production. And so I sort of said what I thought it was about. And then he said, and Judy, what do you think this scene was about? I was like, oh man, just just tell me where to stand. We don't need to go through. Just tell me where the other guys stand. <laughs> I, I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to step on anyone's toes. But she was so up for everything. They re-rehearsed every scene, re-blocked every scene for my interpretation of it. They were so welcoming. It was honestly one of the most exciting. I mean, I honestly, used to pinch myself every single night. I would go backstage and uh, I'd walk on. And the very first uh, number is a kind of waltz, which the band do. And um, in this production, I had to be between Patricia Hodge, who was playing my wife, and Judy Dench, who was playing, who was playing her lover. And we had to do this sort of waltz as, as, a, as a triangle, basically. And I'd okay. just be standing there going, I'm a policeman's son from Darlinghurst. What the fuck am I doing with these two incredible women? Yeah, no, it was, uh, it was pretty cool. Yeah. Getting Judy Dench to bend over backwards for you and come down on a Monday morning. Like, that's <laughs> some power there, Simon. Goodness me. No, no power of mine. It was just no. the incredible um, generosity of the of generosity of the cast and the and and and, and that organization too, yeah. Then again, she did do cats, so clearly she is up for anything. Can <laughs> not put anything past Judy Dench anymore. But it, it looks like it's way past bedtime for a little night music. So we're gonna go <laughs> to an ad break. G'day listeners, Aaron here. While you're topping up your coffees, did you know that you can support our show? And go on a fantastically scary adventure at the same time? Go to www.thetonistontales.com forward slash bookstore to grab your copy of The Toniston Tales, a darkly funny Aussie trilogy about a young boy who rescues injured animals in his spare time and the roller coaster ride he's taken on by a literal fish out of water. Written by me, the village idiot of Thrash and Treasure, You'll come to love Toniston Turnbull and the dozens of wacky characters that he meets along the way. And here is a sneak peek. After barely three hours of light sleep, Toniston Turnbull slowly opens his eyes, his body feeling heavier than it ever has before. Not from extra weight, from tiredness and stress. Polly sighs in the shadows behind him, the flame of the nearest barbed wire tiki torch tower having died down, but not out, while Toniston napped. Are you awake? Toniston whispers. Oh, how can I sleep in this place? Polly moans, turning onto her side and facing Toniston, who stays on his back, imagining obscure animal-esque shapes in the rusted tin roof above them, shadows faintly formed by the nearest dying torches. 
We need to work out a way to get out of here, Toniston states the obvious. He whispers, despite the fact the nearest shacks to their own are several metres away, and the occupants presumably asleep as most prisoners seem to be. How? There's no fence to squeeze through, or even climb, Polly replies, sitting up in bed and then stretching out her sore arms. The hairs stand on end from the slight chill in the air. I don't know, but I think the whole fighting thing is a distraction. You mean, to distract the other prisoners when new ones arrive? No, I, I think that was just bad timing. Didn't you notice? Toniston goes on to explain his theory. That fight happened. Everybody gathered around. I didn't see one person who wasn't watching. And then when I vomited, the only gate in this place closed shut. What are you trying to say? I think something happened when everyone's back was turned. Like what? Whispers Polly, her voice breaking up in fear. I don't know. That's what we've got to find out. Toniston's brain starts working overtime. But it's strange that nobody seems to want to leave. They seem almost happy. Definitely content. So, when's the next one of those stupid beatdowns? Toniston can't help but think Polly looks tough, almost evil in the shadows as she asks, I don't know, Toniston begins. But both teenagers are distracted by a crumbling noise in the distance. Hopping out of bed, Toniston joins Polly on her own, equally uncomfortable one. Spotting a large, white package hovering close to the cave ceiling, behind it, a shadowy figure. The package is lowered down, causing the teenagers themselves to lower as well, hoping not to be spotted by whom, or what, may be operating this obscure crane. Over a long, slow descent, the package is dropped to the ground. Polly keeps her eyes on it, but Toniston looks up immediately, spotting a large black shadow scurry away to God only knows where. Come, he whispers, as he quietly hops off her bed, slipping into his docks with bare feet. Polly follows his lead. Careful to keep watch on all directions, the teenagers swiftly sneak over to the white package, their hearts beating an almost tribal jam in perfect harmony, and stopping in their tracks as the sudden realisation of what lies before them sinks in. A woman, seemingly in her early twenties, wrapped up in bandages from the neck down. No, not bandages. Is that spiderweb? Polly asks, completely mortified at the prospect. Grab your copy of The Toniston Tales from thetonistontales.com forward slash bookstore today. Hooroo! Anyways, we're back with Thrash and Treasure. I'm Aaron, that's Evan, and we are joined by the sensational Simon Burke. And I am absolutely thrilled. I'm wearing, if we can say it, my bananas in pyjamas tie. Oh, nice. And also underneath, <laughs> um, I've just lifted up my shirt. Oh, God, what have you got? I've got my Sesame Street T-shirt on underneath. Oh, well, that's not, that's not that impressive. Yeah, that's a bit of a tentative link. <laughs> <laughs> that's nearly as bad as my link. The reason I chose Joe Satriani is because he was a teacher. <laughs> a, a guitar teacher. Sesame Street and play school go hand in hand in Australia. They're, they were always one after the other. I mean, uh, if you had done Mully Grubs, I would have been impressed. Oh, Mully Grubs. <laughs> yes. No, I loved that with the, the face. Mully Grubs me. Mully Grubs you. That uh, scary mouth. Yeah. Yes, that, I loved, he, loved he's it. probably got a Mully Grubs shirt or at least had one. Are you, are you a B1 or a B2 man, Aaron? Me? No, I'm far too single to be choosy. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> 
and now I've completely lost what I was. Oh, there's okay. So we had also Agro's Cartoon Connection. So as I grew up, I watched that on Channel Seven. Now there is on YouTube a blooper reel of Agro. Oh God, yeah, that's. Oh, I've seen that. That's great. Is there play school ones? That's what I would like to know. I suspect that there are, and yeah, they would be actionable. I would have to say if I saw them, they're pretty. They're, they'd be pretty good. We used to have. We used to have a lot of fun. I'm going to go do some digging and see if there is any on YouTube. And if anyone's listening to this, my email. Oh, they'll be well locked away in the vaults of the abc (laughs) never to see the light of day is there a favorite episode there is actually um there's an episode that i did with noni hazelhurst and it was when i was like it was when i was first starting out and uh max lambert was our music director at the time who you know went on you know he's one of australia's you know best um music supervisors and stuff and you know we were so lucky to have him and we did this thing because back in the days when I first started Play School, it was shot as if it was live. So it was like 27 minutes. You had to learn everything. You had to learn the whole script. You had to learn the camera cuts. You had to learn, you know, there was no stopping. These days they do it hmm. in seg- in segments, in sort of two or three minute segments, and they perfect it and, and they move on. But there was this sort of, um, there was this kind of challenge almost that nothing stopped really unless you said a swear word you know um so the idea was to keep going no matter what so i think that's part of the charm of the show is that um as in life as as when parents are playing with kids or they may or you know parents are making um you know um pipe cleaner spiders with a kid like that and you know, a leg or bongs yeah or bongs yeah <laughs> 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 something will fall off so um you know you just keep going right so that's the thing that way um and for some reason we did this thing called the Humpty Dumpty Opera Noni Hazelhurst and I and we basically busked the whole thing all we had was a vague story of what was happening and we sang about seven or eight or nine minutes of a Humpty Dumpty Opera with the King's Horses and King's Men and the everything and we made it up as we went and Max accompanied us. And it was about showing kids what opera was like, how there's a different way of singing, like, you can sing like that as an opera, you know. And um, <laughs> it was so much fun and so stupid um, that apparently they they still play it in um, uh, in primary school teachers kind of um, it's it's a toolkit, you know, it's it, it's it, yeah. And so it was that was a lot of fun. Yeah, that would, that would be my favorite. Yeah, nice. I remember what you mean about the uh, doing it like like it was live. I can like yeah. now that you've mentioned it, I can clearly remember like you'd be finished painting, um, you taking the apron off and walking across to the next set, and you know now we're going to go and going to go do some shopping over at the, you know, and yeah, that segue that it it did, you know, marry it all together. It gave the show a kind of it's not a pejorative term, but it gave it a sort of sloppiness, which made it real, mm. and so like nothing was perfect, and. You know, they abandoned that way of shooting it um, in the early 2000s. And I think that was a big mistake because, oh, yeah, obviously things, time, time changes and, you know, it, the show had to be, but it's it became a slightly more sanitized um, and kind of more produced as opposed to this thing of, mm. hey, you know, like literally as if it was live. So it was almost like live television, even though it yeah. was being recorded. Yeah. It was, it was like you had the, uh, you know, the coolest uh, kindergarten teachers ever. 
you know absolutely it was, it yes. was just like at school you know the same yeah. transitions would have to happen right we have to clean that up and then we have to move on to the next thing uh, yeah. yeah but it, the the show is it's not like american preschool programming that's so bright and colorful mm. and in your face the hosts <laughs> are so incredibly calming to children across australia like that's why it's such an institution because it's not so loud and in our face and even when there is singing and dancing and then i get silly and all that it's still not you know rah rah it's not big bright explosions and stuff it's not tiktok play school no it's not blues clues or anything like that with all you know i don't know what it's like today i haven't watched it in a while but i remember noni because you know noni benita um trish trish goddard they were there when i came in and so i sort of learnt my craft from from those women because they were so incredible um but i remember noni saying to me once very early on and i didn't I didn't understand this for a few years, but she said that she'd learned more about herself as an actor from doing this show than anything else. And I went, oh, what are you about? we're just doing a kid's show. But basically this whole thing of, it's about presenting, well, A, you're presenting. So you're actually talking to an audience um, or talking to a camera where most of our time, you know, when we're doing film and television in drama, we try not to look at the camera. We obviously pretend the camera's not there. You actually have to engage with someone. And we're always told that we weren't talking to children, talking to like a hundred children, talking to a million children, or even talking down to children. We were invited to engage with a four, one four-year-old person. So basically you're like, you know, as most parents and carers, you know, at home will talk to one or two four-year-old people. So you, there's, there's, so you sort of take away the sort of condescension of it. And um, I know that there's some, I did a moment. I was I was doing this thing in Milan Rouge the other night when I was being absolute absolute dickhead and kind of like I was hopping around the stage like a fucking kangaroo or something for no reason, and the audience loved it. And I turned around them and I hopped a bit more and they laughed a bit more. And I thought, this is twenty five years of play school. That's why I'm doing. That's why I can do this role. The reason why I can be as free <laughs> and as kind of joyful on stage is because of that show. So I'm forever in debt for them letting me you know be able to be a bit of a dickhead on in front of 70 million kids <laughs> i've heard it's a bit of a master class for performers and if you can make it on play school i think you can make it anywhere in any industry because it is on on the subject of Milan rouge i did kind of break the rules yeah. this week because normally I, i'm not allowed to listen to musicals because we haven't done them yet yes right? so i haven't heard wicked and i haven't heard into the woods and all that kind good. of thing it's annoying because i know they're big shows and i haven't seen them yet but i did listen to Milan rouge the movie soundtrack because I haven't seen the yep. film okay. and the movie soundtrack well, was I found was just a waste of waste of time. Oh. I, I've only got, <laughs> I've only got a couple of comments on it. Um, Elephant yeah. Love Medley had me pissing myself laughing all the way through. This this is musical comedy comedy with music all the way through. Yeah. Um, you mean you mean from the uh, from the musical? Yes, yes the music yeah. the music from the musical. Yeah, the, the love medley in the movie, they kind of had an idea there, but the musical has just run with it and gone all out. The soundtrack is different, though. I, I, you have to watch different. the movie. They're two cause... completely different things, yes. The movie, it's yes. different. It's, it's, you've got to actually oh. watch the movie to get the full effect. But anyways, continue. Oh, anyway, I haven't, sure. yeah, yeah, no, I loved Elephant Love Movie. That's uh, great. Medley. Yeah. I, I was laughing most yeah. of the way through this just from the musical gags. You know, having the the backing vocals from one song, the the chorus from 
from yeah, uh, exactly. smashing them together. Now, the only one, the only thing I was disappointed at coming away was the um, you were doing is it Lady Gaga, the rah rah, ooh la la. Yeah, yeah. And no one in the background. I was waiting for someone in the backing vocals to say, uh, you know, lover of a Russian queen. I was waiting for someone to break into Ra Ra Rasputin and it didn't happen. Oh, Bernie M. Oh, fabulous. I was wondering where that was going. I'm like, do it, do it. It's coming. It's coming. It's got to be coming. And you didn't do it. I was so, so frustrated. That's like blue ball, musical blue balls there. I will definitely take that up with Justin Levine, who has our arranger and uh, and yeah. supervisor. So I've had point. I've had Russ yeah. Patine stuck in my head all week now because of that. Oh, I love Bernie M. <laughs> what they've done with Moulin Rouge, for those of you guys who haven't seen it yet, is in the movie. Yeah. Obviously, there's there's forty five songs that are sung or referenced in the in in the movie. But the movie was made twenty one years ago, and so when they came to do the Broadway production, which we are now doing, um, uh, the team decided that, well, there are 21 years of musicals, of, of music that has not been, you know, that's happened since then. So they got rid of 10 songs from the movie, which made it 35, and they added 40 songs. So there's 75 <laughs> songs in our show. And so, you know, when the movie came out, there was no Gaga, there was no Beyonce, there was no Katy Perry, there was no uh um there was no Britney, there was no Sia, there was no Oh, there was Britney. Oh, there was Britney. Mm, yeah, was there? she came out, yeah, in 97, 98. Oh, okay, hit. well, okay, sorry, Brit. Sorry, Brit. She's suffered enough, Simon. Mm. Sorry. <laughs> Well, that was the other impressive impressive thing is the cast is taking on, even if it's only in snippets, they're taking on some of the, the best vocal talents in the world at their uh, peaks and pulling it off, which is, yeah, that's phenomenal. I have to sing Chandelier. That's my big, my, yeah. my big number in the show. And like, honestly, Matt, I mean, yeah, as, as you know, I'm not, I'm not the most popular music kind of savvy person in the world. And I first, when I first like started singing the song, I thought, why is the audience laughing? And you go like, it's because they cannot believe that this big, bombastic, kind of crazy character starts turning around and sings, party girls, they don't get hurt, can't feel anything. So, um, yeah, that's for me, that's the highlight of my show is, is getting to sing that incredible song. And it's a bastard to sing too. It's incredibly difficult. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, I think I've all tried. Now, just uh, Moulin Rouge, because obviously the, the stage, there's a catwalk that comes out, so there's tables and if you've got a ticket on those tables, you have to be there at the start of the show because once those bridges close, you can't, they're not going to lift the bridge up for you, mate. That's right. Sorry, you can sit somewhere else. Now, how many people, because you've just finished up in Melbourne, <laughs> how many people missed the start of the show and you would see that an, an empty seat would soon be taken up at the start of Act Two? <laughs> um, I think the people in the can-can seats, they're the seats you're referring to. Um, yep. I think they must. They they're probably wised up to the fact that there's about twenty of them. They need to get there pretty early. But um, let me say, certainly our completely totally sold out season in Melbourne. Like there'd probably people in in the audience, people in the foyer. Like if someone wasn't there, they'd probably just say, "Oh, I'll come in and sit down." Because uh, yeah, we 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 had a real grab on tickets towards the end, and uh, it was such a it's 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 just such a fun show to do. It's it's so it's so great. Yep. Yeah. Well, from something fun to something serious. Mm -hmm. How do you deal with self-doubt and that inner saboteur? Oh, that's a very heavy question at this, at this time of the day. But um, mm. I don't often doubt myself when I have the job or when I'm doing the job. I think once I have the job, 
I sort of think, well, at this stage in my life, I think, well, I'm doing this for a reason, so I just go ahead and do it. I guess the self-doubt for me comes in when when you really want something and and you really work to audition for it or something, you don't get it, and then that's when that sort of creeps in. But, I mean, I'm very fortunate, I think, and I think it's only a, a, a result of having done it for a while, is that once I actually do the job, I don't really doubt myself. I kind of just get on with it. And I think, um, you know, always being open and being humble and being willing to learn from everyone around you, particularly, I think, for me these days, I learn much more from performers who are just starting than I learned from. When I started out, I would just would look up to the people that I re- admired and respected and people who were much older than me. But now I'm, now I'm, now I'm sort of a, <laughs> an old dude. I... I get my inspiration from people who are literally just starting, not people who've been doing it for 10 years, but literally who are having their first job. I find that sort of helps me with all my self-doubt and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Just on the younger generation of performers you speak about, uh, there's not too many cast albums these days, but there is you know, a lot of social media and we see snippets or photos or whatnot. Do you think we need more cast albums of Australian casts to help boost that younger generation of performers, as well as the older ones, obviously. Should there be more Australian cast albums? In many ways, the sort of ship has sailed in that regard. I mean, I think that, you know, 25 years ago, you would get the Australian cast recording of of a musical, but there's just, you know, I think CDs going out and all sorts of stuff and it's so much, so much more expensive. I think, I think, I think people get to know the shows these days well before they see them. Like Hamilton, for example, like you would not need an Australian cast recording of Hamilton because, you know, everyone in the, in, everyone in the, in, of the millions of people who will see it in Australia probably know the, know the Broadway cast recording so well. But they don't know the young cast. That's what, that's where I think they would benefit. Mm. I'm not sure I'd necessarily agree with you about that. I think that certainly, for example, I'm talking about the the Hamilton, the young yeah. performers in Hamilton, um, Australian performers, and thankfully all, virtually all Australian performers in Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a, virtually all Australian cast, like we do have an all Australian cast in Moulin Rouge. Um, those young people like Lyndon Watts and Chloe Zool and, and Jason Arrow, who are playing the leads in, in, in Hamilton in Australia, I mean, social media and the producers of Australian musicals have become so savvy with social media that those people have now quite a big profile that I think a much bigger profile than doing a cast recording would, mm-hmm. would give them. I think, um, you know, you, you, I, I just look at some people like, you know, you, you look at how many followers they have on Instagram before they're in Hamilton and how many they have now. And uh, <laughs> it's, it's quite, it's quite stunning. I don't know. I guess in just in terms of looking after the performers that, might help i don't know whether performers in australian performers in musical theater are well treated or not i think that um seem to be secondary to the the shows in australia i'm not sure that i agree with that i think it very much depends actually on the producer like for example moulin rouge the producers of moulin rouge head and shot they are just the most fantastic people i've ever worked with um They looked after us during the pandemic in a way that was above and beyond the call of duty. Um, they have a kind of um, an inclusivity and a, and, a, and a commitment to equality and diversity, which I've never seen even in subsidized theater, let alone commercial theater. And they've got together a cast 
in this production anyway. I mean, we've been through a lot. We've been together for almost a year and, you know, we've been through quarantines and pandemics and closures and, and mm -hmm. outbreaks of COVID and, and being stood down and stuff. Yeah. And um, they just happened to cast it with a 35 people who, whether they're 19 years old, it's their first show, or they're as old as me and it's their 60th show. Um, we were kind 600th. of- 600th. So, I mean, oh. I've seen your resume. 600th. <laughs> and that's being like lied about it. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> to, to, to your point, I don't think yeah. you can ever take the pedal off the metal in terms of looking after performers or, in fact, anyone who works for you in any industry. I think that um, there are good employers and there are bad employers. But, I mean, uh, I don't necessarily think that, you know, um, that Australian musical theatre performers are, are treated any less than anyone else in the world. That would be my case. My only, my only thing that I would say is that, um, you know, you look at the, the shows that do really, really well here and you know, they are by and large um, all Australian casts. And I think that, you know, protecting Australian jobs for Australian performers is is something that I would, you know, always be very, very much in favour for and always always support because, you know, that's how that's how you get a, a next generation of, of um, musical theatre stars. Like when I did Les Mis, I was in the original Australian cast of Les Mis when I was in my early 20s. And there was Anthony Waller and Philip Quast and... Deborah Byrne and Marina Pryor and um, and we were all kind of fairly young, but th that's when Cameron McIntosh said, "No, there is the talent here to cast Australian performers, and there is no reason that we have to bring people out." Had that not happened, had they brought out people from the states or from the UK who had done like the the third understudy in this, then perhaps you know we would never have got our chance. And I think that that sort of um, thinking about the future always has to be um always has to be looked at because um the only reason we are here doing what we do today is because we're the, given the opportunities as young performers and you you do have to nurture an industry you, you can't just expect it's going to happen you have to really nurture it back on Moulin Rouge you'll say Nate looked after you those closures I believe you guys got halfway through your show and it got closed because of COVID yep in the middle of the show what what happened there well not only was it a normal show, it was our New Year's Eve show. Oh, uh, and um, my partner, who I hadn't seen for nine months, uh, had just been down for Christmas and we hadn't seen each other for nine months and he had organised this, uh, like 10 or 15 friends to come to my apartment that I'd rented in Melbourne and we had all, having this big sort of barbie, I was going to see all these friends, we were going to have a, we had an afternoon show and we were having New Year's Eve. <clears throat> and um, that was the time we were, we were still having PCR tests on site, as we still do twice a week, and uh, and rat tests every day, rats every day. Sorry, not rat tests. And uh, um, it was the time; it was New Year's Eve, and so it was around the time in Melbourne and in Australia where you know um, COVID was really starting to 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 get quite serious, the um, Omicron wave. Anyway, um, one of our people in our cast had not had their PCR returned. Um, but everyone else had. And so they did a rat test and um, they were fine. And then, so we did the show as normal. And then um, in the middle of the show, the company found out that that person's rat, uh, PCR had come back positive. And so Ooh. it was at the time, it was just before, you know, it was Junior's Eve and it was, you know, there was such a big kind of, everyone was very seriously worried about it. And so, our producers were amazing. Our team on the ground were incredible. The show was stopped. 
um, we're all sent to our dressing rooms. The audience was out of the theatre within literally 10 minutes. And um, yeah, they got the hell out of there. That's why. Yeah. My, <laughs> my, my partner said, um, my own partner said, um, actually, you have to um, get everyone out of the thing because I have to spend New Year's Eve by myself because I had to isolate by myself um, on New Year's Eve as the, the whole cast. We were just very, very serious about it, which is, you know, I get cross with people who call that overkill because I think people were just responding to what had to be responded to at that day, at that time. I mean, that would be maybe different, you know, six months later, but at that time, that was how you responded to things. You were very, you didn't fuck around this stuff. You just, when, when there's a problem, you just kind of, cut the cord so it was it was a bit it was full on and um i feel terribly sorry for the audience who were there that day because mm-hmm. the, the middle of the second half but um they all came back yeah that's all right well, at least the teen got to survive that day yeah uh, but anyways uh, what has been your most vulnerable on stage moment or the most sort of scared or when i did the sound of music uh in London at the London Palladium, I was playing Captain Von Trapp. Yeah. And I'd come over from Australia to do it. And I was just had this amazing opportunity to come and, and, and do this role. And I'd been in London about two or three months. I just opened the show and um, I must've been feeling homesick. I didn't think I was homesick, but I hadn't seen my partner for a while. And, you know, I was, you know, kind of a bit lonely. And it was a matinee in the afternoon. And in that show, there's a moment in the second half where the Nazis are sort of about to come and take over. And, um, you know, the, there's a scene where someone's very nasty to my character and he, the Nazi guy leaves and, and Maria says, uh, what are we going to do, Georg? And I say, we'll have to get out of Austria right away. And this particular afternoon, the Nazi dude came in and we had this scene. He walked out and uh, Maria says, what are we going to do, Georg? And I said, we'll have to get out of London right away. <laughs> and I looked at her and she looked at me and the audience sort of took this breath in. And then 2,000 people and me and her just laughed and laughed and yep. laughed. It was like... What the fuck have I just said? We'll have to get out of London right away. Yeah. So I was, yeah, maybe I felt quite vulnerable then. Yeah. Conversely, what job have you left feeling like you left it all on the stage or left it all in the, in the studio? Like you, you gave it everything and you walked away just feeling so satisfied with what you did. There's an element of that in Moulin Rouge. I feel that the show is such an event for people especially in these times when we've all been locked up for a couple of years and, you know, every audience that we had in Melbourne, we'd have 1800 people in the audience and maybe it was for 1600 of them. It was their first night out in 18 months, their first date night, you know, or their first time they'd, you know, got a babysitter or first time they'd been in Melbourne. And I think the same will be in Sydney. Um, And the show is so much fun, but this character that I play, I feel like there's, I mean, I've been doing it, as you say, I've been doing this for 48 years and it's like there's so much kind of performative. Um, the character is so basically, he's almost like the living, breathing kind of theatre person and uh, it requires so much energy and so much physicality and so much vocal energy, but it is so rewarding because about 60% of my stuff is me interacting with the audience and 
there is no way of doing the show like even 100% unless you, you have to do it like 400% every single performance eight times a week or you don't feel like there's just no way of doing it. It's, you just, it is just like it, it's on steroids. And so I come away from that show every single performance absolutely spent and absolutely fucked, but I've never enjoyed anything. I feel, I feel so rewarded by it because the audience have such a great time. It's just the best show I've ever done, yeah. 100%. Now, um, obviously, you've done conquered stage and screen and audiences of all different types. So what has been the sweetest thing a fan has ever said to you or something that, that sort of meant the most to you and stuck out? Mm. Obviously, you raised a lot of us, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> you and Noni and John and George, Benita. My favourite, my favourite, favourite, favourite ever one. Uh, was uh, I lived in Bondi many years ago and I'd been on play school for about five or six years and um, we had a boxing day party with some mates and then we like, you know, like heaps of people coming after, you know, all getting away from your families and actually having a good time with your mates and stuff. Yeah. And um, a friend of mine, Rainey, she brought her two-year-old, Ted, along and um, he was very excited. Um, to, to She kept telling him that Simon from play school was going to be there. Anyway, so I arrived <laughs> and she said, uh, oh, Ted, Look, this is Simon. You know Simon. Simon's on play school. And Ted looked at me very doubtfully and she said, Yeah, you know, you remember Simon. Simon, Simon from play school. And he looked at me, and he looked at his mother, and he looked at me, and he looked at his mother and said, Is Gumby coming? <gasps> oh, Gumby. <laughs> I go, you, Gumby's a rock star, Simon. Sorry, but. See, can you imagine like, Gumby with a slab of VB saying, Hey, mate, when I put the cold one? <laughs> yeah, I can see that. Yeah. I think that's my favorite. Yeah, that's adorable. <laughs> now, just still on that, in the USA, artists, especially in the Disney machine, they get pigeonholed and their contracts are you can't go and do this, that, and everything else. Was it ever a tightrope choosing more adult fare during that period? Like it was a long period, it was 20 years. Were you ever in two minds about choosing sort of more grown up stuff? Never really. And I yeah. think that was basically. Certainly the people who produced Play School at the time or for the 25 years that I did it, um, they were very mindful that um, most of the performers on Play School are actors yeah. and, um, you know, um, that this is something that was just a job and it wasn't our life, it wasn't our full-time job because even if you did, even if you did like 20 episodes of Play School, that would amount to about two weeks or three weeks of filming a year. So it doesn't, you know, it doesn't actually take up a great deal of time um and they were really happy like um they're really happy to do you know some sort of unbelievably dark kind of violent kind of play with sort of very adult themes and you know you're a play school actor i mean it it's more it certainly has presented some interesting situations in my personal life i have to say when you're sort of you know you're going out somewhere or you meet someone and they say you know, I used to watch you on play school when I was four. That's that's yeah. a whole different kettle of fish. But um, certainly in terms <laughs> of... Um... Yeah. I think you opened with that, didn't you, Aaron? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, I was a little bit older. I was, um, yeah. I, was, I was moving out of play school and going on to Sesame Street, I think, when, uh, uh, when you took over. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm 45, so 10 years older than Aaron. You are. Mm -hmm. Now, what... Nursery rhyme do you hope to never hear again? <laughs> I got 
pretty sick of I'm a little teacup, I think. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, um, they're all good. They're all fun, you know. And uh, I loved, um, especially we had so many great musical directors on Play School, there was always a kind of interesting musicality to them. Um, and you got to kind of, you know, um, that was interesting thinking about the performance of Play School songs. Like, it was very much, when I did it anyway, they often chose people who couldn't necessarily sing wonderfully. And, you know, those of us that were singers had to, were actually encouraged to kind of flatten it out a bit so that we didn't sound, it wasn't too performative, it was more inviting. So, um, you know, take the vibrato out, take the sort of show, and then, you know, do some sort of show-off stuff when you're kind of mucking around, like the opera, play school opera thing I was talking about before. Um, now, I found that really cool that they, it wasn't sort of precious about the, the tonality of it because if if it's too performed, then a a, a four year old kid will will just watch rather than join in. Yeah, mm. I want to sneak in before we run out of time. Sorry, just for I did I did listen to your album. Um, oh, thank you. I think literally yesterday, day before. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say it's not normally the kind of thing I would listen to. You know, being generally I like loud guitars and screaming, sure. but um. But I did love "Song in the Sand," um, oh. and the the duet with Caroline O'Connor. You're on top. Uh, that line is a line in there. That friend of the show, Caroline O'Connor, that, yep. that you missed out on. Yeah, I I'm like I know that name. There's a there's a line in it. Um, you're you're the nominee for the GOP. That that made me laugh. Oh wow, yeah. Um, and that was written in in the 30s. Can you believe it? Yeah. Wow. Cold okay. yeah. <laughs> well. Yeah, we keep repeating ourselves, don't we? How incredibly um, honoured I was that Caroline, um, you know, agreed to sing that song with me. I, we've never actually worked together, but we know each other pretty yeah. well. I'm such a, a huge fan of hers. I know she's been on your show, and um, yes, what what? I saw her in Nine to Five uh, a couple of nights ago, and I want to see it. She is just, I mean, she's wonderful in everything, and she's wonderful in this. So if you haven't seen Nine to Five in and and it's in 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 a city near you, go and see Caroline that because she's amazing. I'm hoping my friend can get us tickets. Although if he's if he's gotten a boyfriend in the past couple of months, then I'm not going to that show, am I? Oh, um, anyway, but yeah, just finishing off. Uh, being Australian, obviously, my country was excellent. Loved my country. Oh yeah, Dorothy McKellar. Uh, and yeah. and the other the other duet with Connie Fisher, uh, True Love, that really stood out as well. I've I've oh, found listening you. through it when you get paired with with female voices like that, and you can bounce back and forth. That's 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 what I think we really shine thank you so much really did enjoy it after a couple of listens i was really digging it yeah no i do i do like the what more can i say which um just a fun fact and to to tie it into your career that song was actually written for a mary poppins musical that william finn was writing and on our alison frazier episode she sings to me the original lyrics Goodness me, but obviously what happened when William Finn came to watch falsettos in Australia, I believe he wasn't a fan of the production. And <laughs> Yeah, Bill Finn did come out to see the show and it was such an incredible, uh, it was so exciting for me to meet this guy because I think it's one of, um, it's a beautiful, beautiful show. And um, mm. it was, it would be one of my, career highlights too it's also the first time I and only time I've worked with Gina Riley who played Trina in that and that was yeah. great yeah <laughs> I, I don't think he was a fan of the production but um mm -hmm. it was certainly great to meet him and um you know he liked my performance so that was all that mattered and he loved Gina Riley too but um yeah. 
Yeah, like he's um, you know, I think I think it must be also. I mean, imagine like writing a, a show, a little kind of almost a chamber, little musical in yeah. on off Broadway in New York, and you never think it's going to go anywhere else in the world, and then suddenly, like ten years later, it's at the Sydney Opera House. I mean, it would you'd think what the fuck is going on, wouldn't you? You would. Yeah, I I so badly want him on this show. I I tried emailing, but it bounced <laughs> back. I was so disappointed. Um, I said, okay, so lastly, if you could name a theatre after a famous Australian actor, what would you call that theatre? The Peter Carroll Theatre. Now, Peter Carroll is my uh, I my first professional player. I did when I was 12 years old, and I was lucky yeah. enough that Peter Carroll uh, happened to be in the cast as an adult. And um, ever since then, he, to me, is the... He's my role model, really, of of what it is to be in this industry and to be uh, respectful and kind and funny and talented and yeah. incredibly brilliant. And um, now he's taught me everything. And I think, um, yeah, I think if we ever have a theatre, that would. I mean, I know we've got the Nancy Hayes. I would like to have the Peter Carroll Theatre. Yeah, that's awesome. Now, just uh, one one last thing. I remember you were involved in company with Kookaburra that pissed off Stephen Sondheim. How was that? Because I meant to ask this before and, and we'll let you go. Do you want to give some context that I could comment? So what had happened was, um, my stomach's rumbling. Obviously, it's nearly dinner time. Okay, so this new Australian theatre company called Kookaburra Musical Theatre came out in Sydney and one of their, I think it was their second show, was Stephen Sondheim's company and there was no understudies. So they decided to... I believe, cut certain numbers from the night and Stephen Sondheim was not happy. I think he threatened to pull the show completely, pull the rights, so I believe it was. Um, oh, that's true. Uh, what happened yep. was is that one of the performers, Christy Whelan-Brown, who was the amazing Christy Whelan-Brown, was playing mm-hmm. April in company and uh, we didn't have understudies and it was the middle of winter and the stupid producers chose not to have understudies. And so yeah. she got very, very sick and the show was cancelled. Um, we'd done the matinee and she, we decided that she was not going to do the evening show. And then at about six o'clock, we all got a call saying, come in. And I said, oh, is Christy back on? No. Is someone going to go on for her? No. And so we got in and they said, um, we are doing the show. We are just cutting every reference and every song of Christy Williams' character. So, of all the of all the people to do this to, Stephen Sondheim, like what <laughs> goes through your mind? Seriously, sorry. Yeah, and and he's this is knowing he's in the audience. Oh no, he wasn't in the audience, but he was no, no, but uh, right. He certainly knew about it within about four hours, I believe. Yeah. So, uh, uh, yeah. And it was so like next morning, the entire production, like the show, was closed for a couple of days while they worked out what to do because he, you know, obviously he and his people just do not do that to my work, and uh, quite rightly, um, the axe came down. And um, no, it was uh, it was an interesting time. There's a book about that somewhere, or certainly a chapter. Oh, is there? Oh, awesome. Mm. But anyways, it, it has been such an honor, truly, Simon, to have you on my show and best of luck for the, or Chookers, I should say, for the uh, Moulin Rouge. So if you're in Sydney, get tickets to see Moulin Rouge at what theatre are you at? The Lyric? No, we open at the Capitol Theatre on the 4th of, 4th of June. We're playing to the end of the year and uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, 
it's pretty fun to come and see it. Thank you so much for having me, guys. It's a, it's, I've really listened to a couple of episodes before I was on, and uh, it's, I think it's really fun what you do, and I've, I've, I've had a great time. Thank you very much. No, it's, it's such a thrill. Thanks so much for uh, yeah giving us your time and, and, and making me, well, Aaron, Aaron made me make a, a rocket, but it's been a while since we've done some arts and crafts. Yes, yes. Yeah, the kids are getting older now, you know. Youngest is friggin' 14, and yeah, that... <laughs> That's nice. Alrighty, a huge thank you to Simon Burke for joining us. What a thrill that was. You can find him on the social medias at Simon Burke on Twitter or on Instagram at Simon underscore underscore Burke. So that's two underscores. I had to check putting my mouse and it looked a little bit too long. So I thought, I think that's two. And it was. So you can find us on Instagram at Thrush and Treasure Podcast or on Twitter at Thrush and Treasure, also Facebook and YouTube and all that. Be sure to like and subscribe and if you are feeling nice, write a review. Be as honest as you want to be. Anyways, that's it from us. So you take care and we shall see you next time. Hooroo! Thanks, guys. <laughs> take care. Bye. Thank, thank you, sir. Wiggly woo! Wiggly woo! Let's all do the wiggly woo!